science is not immune from sort of like the mob mentality of like, oh my God, like this, this thing is shiny. Let's all go in and periodically things get kind of accepted as some, some form of the truth, right? And people keep kind of like regurgitating them until that, um, right? Until that so-called truth runs into enough uh, tension with the new data that at some point, you know, it usually requires somebody, typically, you know, a graduate student to come in and say, like, uh, I think it's the opposite of what you guys have been saying. And, and then it goes through the usual cycle, uh, which is, again, has parallels. It goes, uh, like, when new ideas that are, that are very interesting that are put out, first, uh, people say it's wrong. Uh, then people say it's irrelevant, um, and then they're like, well, actually, I came up with that first. Oftentimes you talk to scientists and they have this attitude of, we know everything and the lines are drawn and we're done figuring it out. But I think that Professor Batagian has this understanding that things will change. And as you push the boundaries, there will be shifts in understanding. And they don't change necessarily by jumping up on the megaphone and being like, this is all garbage. They change through this really careful process of collaboration, refinements, you know, mathematicians working together with really heady theorists, people who are interpreting the data, working together with experimentalists who are able to make sense of the mechanics of what's happening. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, we cover quantum physics, we cover cosmology, we cover solar system formation, star formation, star death. We run the entire gamut, and it was, it was a great conversation. You're going to really enjoy it. If you're already supporting us right now on Patreon, we love you. Thank you so much. If not, and you can spare a few dollars to help us keep the lights on, maybe help crank up the quality of this show, get more episodes out. We really, really could use your support. If you don't have any cash, that's fine. Just share the episode with somebody you think would enjoy it. Share it with your friends, share it with your family, and uh, hopefully we'll be reaching more people soon. And for now, enjoy the conversation with Professor Batagan. The scientific revolution starts now. Did you ever make a decision between music and astronomy, or I sort of didn't have to, uh, right? Because I will keep I keep the band going, right? We're always writing new stuff. The good news is I don't have to depend, you know, financially on on my on doing music, right? Which is uh, which is freeing in a way. I, I I really don't worry about you know what anybody else has to say about you know the songs that we we do with the band. Uh, so we kind of do it for fun, but also we do it seriously, right? We don't just kind of screw around and and have it not go anywhere, right? We we put real effort and time into it, and 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 so in a way, I kind of feel like I I get to enjoy both the best of both worlds, right? It's easier to also do music on the side while being a professor of astrophysics it's harder to be a full-time musician and yeah i was gonna say it's almost impossible for people right it's like who can actually pull that off these days i I have so many friends who are trying to be professional musicians and it's just harder it's harder than ever you know it's not 50 years ago when there's 
these twenty dollar discs you can sell everybody and all of that, you know, or whatever the LPs and there's no products really. It's a strange moment. Absolutely. And and moreover, it's it's further strange because for a long time the lore was like, oh, you know, the as the CD died, right? The like profits of the music industry uh right completely plummeted and therefore it's hard to be a full-time musician. But if you look at kind of like the revenues of of the music industry right now, they're kind of back to where they were in the 90s. So so it's largely recovered without musicians getting uh getting a take, so to speak. So it it is indeed a a very strange moment in time. And uh, we'll see like I think it's pretty unpredictable where it's gonna go. We're definitely I was going to say, we're definitely living through an era of deep bureaucracy, because I think that the structure where the organizers and the people that are writing the notes and and running the running the house, so to speak, are the ones that are getting the big take and the people that are actually doing the work are not necessarily getting something different about the past, the way the music industry was structured too, where record labels that take a risk on bands, they would record way more records than, than they would ever get a hit out of, right? So there's all these one record wonder bands, right? They have these very elaborate productions, like huge string sections, horn sections, just unbelievable gobs of money and time put into them. And they have like one record. And it's like, well, if you're a huge record label and you've got Jimi Hendrix or something, that's basically paying for all these other bands. And I don't know that the label structure or the bureaucracy is set up in the same way as it used to be to afford these kind of adventures i have no idea it just seems like a very different world yeah yeah i think it used to be set up a lot more like a like a vc fund if you will right where you kind of take a chance on a hundred you know artists one will become huge right and uh you know kind of pay for the the other hundred it's unclear to me uh that these days like the album has any meaning at all right i can't i mean i've there are a few bands that I'm like kind of a huge fan of where like when their album comes out, I will sit down and fully, you know, listen to it multiple times. And for much of the rest of the music, it's it's a lot like, you know, clothes or something. You put on clothes in the morning, you take them off and in the evening, like it, it's just like kind of comes and goes. So I think that that kind of rapid turnaround, uh, right, kind of diminishing. It's like a, it's more of a commodity now or something, right? Like music's just so come and go, you know, there's music everywhere pumping out of every single speaker. And I'm not sure it was always quite that way when, when rec- and, and also like the the decentralization of the equipment is really interesting today too, right? Because I feel like 50 years ago, a few companies would have access to this like multi-million dollar equivalent studios and this whole technological pipeline to crank out these records. And nowadays, you know, yeah, we can all basically make records at home, but there's not that same central distribution point either. So, Right, right. I, I think it's, you know, in fact, yeah, go ahead. I'll see Oh, what I was going to say is that it seems like th- you would expect that to expand the horizons of what people are doing and the strangeness of the music, and you would expect it to really bring a, a cultural renaissance. But I feel like it- there is this sense of culture being stuck, of people making very similar things that they've always been making, and everybody's very conservative, and the studios are very conservative. We have friends, you know, um, there was the... What's the studio that does the Motown, the modern Motown records? 
Which one? Oh, uh, Lee Fields. Yeah, the one that's in Brooklyn. Like Lee Fields in the Expressions. It's basically Motown, and it's beautiful. It's wonderfully produced. They're beautiful songs, expertly performed. They're amazing, but they're 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 Motown. It's not it's not Motown with a twist. It's just a rec- it's it's just a recreation of what was once popular and beloved, which is really interesting to me. Batman Fifty Seven. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. Kind of that's a that's an interesting point, and more generally too. Uh, kind of you know agree with you on this on this topic i think you know there are certain there are certain you know products if you will uh, that we consume where perfect competition is a good thing and then and probably music is not that right i mean if you think about like lettuce right like i don't go into the store and think about a brand of lettuce that i'm going to buy it all looks the same to me Right. And uh, and so every brand is in this perfect competition of all lettuce. You know, it costs the same exact amount and we just like consume whatever. You can't really apply that same thinking to to music. But I think at the same time, that's the kind of economic model is that we're just putting out a bunch of stuff. Right. It's all kind of equivalent. Right. Motown is Motown. It's going to sound like Motown. You know what to expect. And, you know, on the consumer end, uh, I think you're right. There's there's a bit of uh, of loss of originality at the same time. You know, I've actually been recently become more optimistic, I guess, of the state of state of rock, um, because I I feel like rock has kind of bottomed out, you know, in its in its uh, popularity. and it's it's almost always that when that bottoming out happens in a given genre that new things get created because there's absolutely no reason to play rock music right other than <laughs> that if you really really want to right and so it's that moment of really really wanting to that leads to kind of new new branches so i i'm optimistic about the future maybe not the present but i'm optimistic about the future of rock music i like that do you see like a similar parallel in science also exactly what i was gonna ask yeah we're just you know people keep making the same batman movie over and over until something actually like the floor falls out from underneath Mm -hmm. absolutely and in fact uh you know science is not immune from sort of like the mob mentality of like oh my god like this what this thing is shiny let's all go in and Periodically, things get kind of accepted as some some form of the truth, right? And people keep kind of like regurgitating them until that, um, right, until that so-called truth runs into enough uh, tension with the new data that at some point, you know, it usually requires somebody, typically, you know, a graduate student to come in and say, like, uh, uh I think it's the opposite of what you guys have been saying. And and then it goes through the usual cycle, uh, which is, again, has parallels. It goes uh, like when new ideas that are are very interesting that are put out. First, uh, people say it's wrong. Uh, Then people say it's irrelevant. Um, And then they're like, well, actually, I came up with that first. We already knew that. (laughs) I think it was William James who said that first. Do you can you think of an example of this happening like in your own career? Where you've seen oh, some some uh, paradigm take a hard right turn or something like that. Well, you know, I mean, there there are many of them, but one interesting one interesting example that comes to mind, actually, um, 
uh, as the, sort of like the story of how extrasolar planets, uh, the, the story of the first kind of exoplanets that were discovered and their origins. So uh, the kind of first class of exoplanets that were found in large numbers were these objects called hot Jupiters, giant Jupiter-like planets. But what's weird about them is they or orbit their stars on sort of, sort of in a matter of days. Okay. So when they were discovered, the kind of immediate paradigm for how they formed became, well, they all form just like Jupiter, and then they all migrate uh, through the disk, through the natal protoplanetary disk, until they stop at the inner edge, and that's how, they, that's how it works. Okay? And everyone sort of agreed that that must be the answer. Right. And when people agreed that must be the answer, it sort of became the lore. Um, in parallel, right, it, it again, I, I don't remember who was the first to to point this out, um, but I think it was, but it was sort of a few kind of people come to mind, like the, the papers by Fabriki and Tremaine, where Fabriki was a grad student, right, pointed out that there's a completely different way of making these giant planets, which is that you, Sure, you start them out where Jupiter is, but then you perturb them onto a high eccentricity, very elliptical orbit, and then they kind of get tidally captured onto a tight orbit around the star. So then the community largely shifted towards that being kind of the start, a standard mode of, of the truth. And this is all like in the span of 20 years, right? So these are, these are I don't want to call them fads. These are just kind of, you know, directions of what people believe to be true. Um, and, you know, we've, like my collaborators and I have um, also thought about this problem a bit. And we're like, wait, all of this, all of these stories start out with the giant planet being somewhere far away and then like migrating all the way down. But like, what's the evidence for that? What, what is the evidence for uh, everything needing to form you know where Jupiter is, right? Is it is that not simply our, you know, biased by our own solar system? And to an extent, right, the two things cannot be divorced, right? Our solar system is also a product of the planet formation process. So you can't say our solar system is somehow special and all of these things are um, are distinct. But nevertheless, we kind of looked into whether or not you can just form these things where they are, and the answer is you can. Right. So maybe sometimes the simplest explanation of, you know, can you just accumulate enough solids, right, to make a core of a giant planet and then will it go through its core nucleated instability and grow a large envelope? The answer is that it turns out to be yes. So, you know, in just a short span of 25 years, we've kind of gone through a bunch of iterations of what we think is the common outcome. And it's interesting because... I feel like those aren't all mutually exclusive. Like you could have different planet formation mechanisms in different places under different conditions. Like we had uh, Gaibor Bajri on the show a few months ago talking about um, brown dwarfs and really just like how similar they are to gas giants, in, in fact. And, and then, you know, you couple that to planets migrating orbits and it's like, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something to that as well. It seems like the last century of science has really wanted to be able to have a single story to tell, where this is the story in capital letters. 
And when you look out at nature, it seems incomprehensible that for the vast diversity of objects that you would have a single linear path towards their formation. I, I think you bring up a really important point, which is that um, I think in kind of fundamental physics, right, that that reductionist point of view has been really successful, right? You reduce things down to the very, very kind of core principle, and then from it, everything flows. So I think, you know, that's absolutely uh, been a success. On the other hand, as we go from kind of, as we go higher up in the levels of complexity, away from just fundamental physics to kind of examine what the world actually looks like, right, that reductionist point of view begins to fail. Because after all, right, a insect is way more complicated than a star, right? Because star, we can still understand from first principles, right? There's hydrostatic equilibrium, nuclear fusion, and, uh, you know, it's basically a ball of ideal gas. Other And yes, there's like corrections, there's magnetic fields. But if we ignore kind of the corrections to leading order, we can understand it. But we can't understand an insect from a uh, from first principles point of view, you're not going to be like, well, okay, let me let me write down the wave function for an ant and solve the Schrodinger's equation for an ant. Right? That just makes no sense. Um, and so planets, you know, and honestly, like the Schrodinger equation starts to like that gets even overly simple when you even talk about like water molecules or something like as simple as a couple atoms combined. Right? It's like, oh, just forget about your simple wave equation. It's like you got like hybridized orbitals and like I think water has something like 50 different energy state like it's all over the place it's not just this nice p and s orbital business that you learn about and yeah it's actually it's a I've been uh I've been sort of obsessing over this this time there's not a well understood connection between how you graduate from uh quantum mechanics to the classical world specifically for chaotic systems so like for systems that are well localized that behave uh, where the number of quantum where the number of quantum numbers is equals to is equal to the number of degrees of freedom which is the case in the hydrogen atom right it has three quantum numbers and three degrees of freedom uh, right you can actually solve that perfectly well for a helium atom it's no longer true and generally right, and, and helium is not that not a very sophisticated atom and this just means that it's vibrating in lots of it, it, it's the vibrations are become less predictable they're less stable or something like that if we think about like well, spherical the, harmonics as the the ideal mm -hmm. atom shape or something like that well so you can't you can't uh associate a given energy level uh for a helium atom for example with a specific spherical harmonic right you have to do perturbation theory and write it down as a series but more generally right the fact um you know what if the what if the system that you're considering is chaotic right then you really have a a bit of a bit of a problem what, what do you mean by chaotic i'm sorry sorry real quick like what do you mean like the there's multiple atoms like crashing into each other or is that what you mean or well let's go let's go simpler right like Let's go, like, imagine the classical world and put a pendulum on top of another pendulum, make a double pendulum. That system is unpredictable, right? It's, uh, in fact, uh, when I was an undergrad, there was a there was a model of a, there was like a, a physical double pendulum in the, like, kind of undergraduate lounge at UC Santa Cruz. And 
I used to sort of like when I would walk by, I'd play with it, you know, and I'd be like, man, this thing is like swinging left and right. <laughs> and I had no idea about the fact that it was unpredictable. And like it was, I think, in my third or fourth year that I read the little plaque uh, next to it that said the reason you can't predict what it's going to do is because it's unpredictable. But now imagine taking that classical system and quantizing it, right? You'd write down Hamiltonian, do the usual thing, replace the P by an operator, right? And you solve for some short, solve the Schrodinger equation, but the Schrodinger equation is linear in the wave function, which means that it cannot possibly yield truly unpredictable results, right? You're, the, the fact that the equation is linear kind of limits the amount of unpredictability it can have down to zero. And so, and this is like a well-known thing, there's quantum suppression of classical chaos. So how you graduate from a quantum chaotic system to a classical chaotic system remains an area of, of research. And there's no single answer to that. It seems like in general, like the translation between the quantum level, the, this highly abstract mathematics to a material basis upon which you get chemistry and all of these other very physical interactions is a ripe area for research right now. Oh, yeah. The, the, correspondence, uh, the correspondence principle between the classic and quantum world is far more interesting than kind of what the typical introduction to quantum mechanics book will tell you that book will just tell you you take h bar to zero and you will you know your wave packet collapses to a point and you just that becomes a classical trajectory but it's actually more subtle than that and that subtlety well so that 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 subtlety begins to really manifest in specifically chaotic systems right in, in systems that are unpredictable you will have um, weird things where where a classic variant an isolated classic variant of the system will kind of diffuse for a while but then its diffusion will get limited by um by the uh by really the, the fact that it runs into h bar as the fundamental scale over which um you know mixing can take place so the way to understand or at least the way i understand it is this um, in classical in the classical world, classical mechanics, right? Everything obeys the Liouville equation, which is a statement merely of the fact that a bundle of trajectories, right, will conserve their phase space area. So it's kind of like if you put down red paint onto a table and drop some white paint on top of it and then start mixing, right? That's a, which is what chaotic systems do that white paint which represents some bundle of trajectories can get mixed up into red paint to arbitrarily fine you know to an arbitrarily fine degree of filaments but in the quantum world you know once you do that mixing and the filaments of paint get smaller than h bar it makes no sense to then go finer than that so the, then the quantum world kind of tells you that's that's enough mixing right that's as far as you can go so there's a real discrepancy there and you would think that this is some like weird thing that will manifest on something like you know 100 million times the lifetime of the universe and like this is not something you could ever observe but for simple systems like the time scale for this to manifest 
is uh, can be a you know a few like characteristic Lapin events, right? A few uh, so for if you imagine a quantum version of Hyperion, which is a satellite of Saturn, which rotates in a chaotic manner, right? Chaotic spins unpredictably, and you replace that with a quantum Hyperion, right? And solve that problem using the Schrodinger equation, what you will find is that that chaotic rotation will become suppressed on a time scale of something like 22 years, right? So it's like a weirdly human, human time scale. And of course, no one believes that Hyperion will really start to not spin. Uh, or will it just become uh, predictable at that point? What does it mean to be suppressed to zero? Yeah, yeah it, it, it sort of goes into a quasi-periodic state. It finds a quasi-periodic state in the quantum world. In the classic world, it doesn't. I mean, it sounds to me, it sounds to me just like the tool, the mathematics that's being used there is just inadequate in that situation to describe what's happening or something like that. It's like sort of the limit of the ability of that drill. Like it just can't tackle the material that you're trying to drill through or something like that. Maybe, but it's also, it, it seems like it could be related to something physical where if you have a limit at which things mix and you have a limit at which they can interact, it's almost as if you've reached some fundamental. Yes, but at the same time, we see that get violated all the time, right? Like our, our classical world is not periodic. Our classical world very much has random things happening. In fact, that's all of the transport, even at a micro, you know, relatively microscopic scale that we see is due to chaos in the classical world. So, because if it wasn't, then everything would kind of be a repetition, uh, right? You'd be able to write everything down as some linear set of, you know, eigenmodes that that eventually will repeat. And our world would not, would never kind of evolve, right? Like the entropy would not, would, would, be limited in its growth so so we see the, that violation all the time and, and i think you know the conventional answer to how this gets accomplished in the literature has to do uh with the like collapse of the wave function right and people say well it's actually what happens is that the wave function collapses all the time so you never get to that you know 22 year or how, whatever time scale you, you get you need to see for chaos to get suppressed. You kind of reset the clock all the time. But I think, you know, that's really where it's not so much even the mathematical methods that are, they're becoming confusing. It's sort of the interpretation of, of quantum mechanics that reaches the quantum. Like how does the collapse of wave of the wave function actually happen? Like, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm actually, you know, it's weird. I find myself in a situation where it's, it's weird I'm talking about this. Like, I'm not an expert at all in, in anything. No worries, neither are we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just That's curious. Right. But it's a know. good, yeah, it's a good question, right? I mean, it makes me think a little bit of uh, boundary conditions. You know, I'm, my, my background, my PhD is squarely in material science. And so whenever we're trying to characterize some material property, um, particularly like harmonics, elastic harmonics. I worked a lot in elastic harmonics. It's very important to bound your statements, right? Your mathematical statements. And like, if we were going to characterize the orbits of the planets, like we could do that with a very simple mathematical statement, but it wouldn't work sometimes, right? So we'd have to find a way to 
put the boundaries on that statement properly. And, and I wonder if there's something at play with regard to boundary conditions as, as we get down into the smaller and smaller level where there's just events that we're not sure how to characterize that interfere with our ability to make more generalizable statements. It's a good question. Yeah. I wish I had, I wish I had a, uh, unbounded answer, but all I have is a bounded one, which is like, I have no idea. Do do you think that this the the quantum processes are involved in the assembly of planets and solar systems, or is it such a negligible effect that it doesn't? Yeah, so it plays a um, it plays a role, which is a remarkable role. So um, so much of the you know outcome of planet formation ends up kind of depending on the chemistry of the disk. Right. The right planet formation starts out with first the star, like big ball of hydrogen helium gas collapsing, right? It makes the star. And because of conservation of angular momentum, some of that material has to go into orbit. You make this disk of hydrogen helium, uh, plus a bunch of other stuff sprinkled in through the disk. And and that's where uh quantum mechanics begins to really play a role because the opacity structure of the disk is ultimately controlled by quantum processes and the consequences of opacity structure of the disk and, and more generally the kind of chemistry of the disk dictates what you're going to build in it. So at the fundamental level, quantum processes are really important. And quantum mechanics is really unforgiving in a way, right? If you ask like how many drops of dye do you need to dye a pole red? It's like three drops, right? There's an it's an it's amazingly like it's amazingly effective at uh, at altering opacity. So um, all I guess I'm, uh, I'm I'm trying to say is that we really do see at the end of the day the consequences of the quantum world because we're standing on one. Right? Well, I'm sitting currently office chair and sitting on one yeah. can i ask you about that disc collapse uh process a little bit more because we've talked to a few different people and and i always uh try to hear different astrophysicists take on on this process because it seems like it's explained very quickly in most textbooks especially intro astronomy type textbooks and you mentioned chemistry and i know there's a lot of stuff going on there it's not because people often have a hard time imagining how in the vacuum of space, if you release a bunch of gas, you know, pop a balloon or something, how does that turn into a, even if it's a huge balloon, how does that turn into a star? How is there enough attractive processes going on? And how, then how do you get enough metal to form the well, center let, of a rocky planet, right? Let's hold off on that. Though. <laughs> just, I'm just trying to understand the stars for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's go with that analogy of you got your balloon, right? You pop your balloon in space, right? Of course, suddenly you kind of release the the boundary of the thing that's holding the gas together, right? The atoms have some velocity, so they have some temperature, right? They have pressure, and so now they're free, and so they all blow apart, okay? Uh, right? And at the same time, right, well, a balloon, you know, a conventional balloon is a bad example because you know, there's enough energy for them to escape the gravitational pull of the balloon. But imagine you have a very, very large, you know, solar mass balloon, and it's also, and the 
and the temperature is like 10 degrees, right? So the atoms are moving really, really slowly, right? And you pop the balloon and sure, they blow apart. But as they blow apart, they, they see the overall gravitational pull still of the collective, you know, collective gas. So as they go, they, they slow down, right? Then eventually they reach some equilibrium where now the gas is kind of dispersed and it's sort of in this balance between the kinetic energy of the gas, uh, right? Being kind of balancing the overall potential energy. And in fact, uh, to be in equilibrium, the kinetic energy has to be one half out of the overall potential energy. And then you have this ball, okay? Does that make sense so far? Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm just trying to imagine like the scales. I think what it comes down to for me is just imagining a place that's so dense already, like a gaseous region that is so dense, you know, it's very difficult to... It's actually super diffuse. Yeah, it's like taking the mass of the sun and spreading it out over, you know, a light year, right? Or, or like half of a light year, right? So imagine this giant cloud and the, the, it's so diffuse that the atoms are moving really slowly. They occasionally collide into another one. So their kinetic energy is low. But the overall potential energy, you still have the total mass of the sun. So they're all kind of hanging together. They're all orbiting, in effect, this total mass of the sun, occasionally running into one another. Now, then uh, note the fact that space is really, really cold. The outside of this ball of gas, outside it's like three degrees, like well, 2.7 degrees. It's like literally 2.7 degrees. So, right, the this ball of gas is yeah oh sorry i was gonna say it seems like that would that lend itself towards like condensation reactions wouldn't these gases be like combining as they cool down it just seems i'm just thinking of what happens on earth yeah you're talking about hydrogen and helium right so these are really simple things right so um people do you know talk a little bit about hydrogen forming ice uh but let's let's forget about that for a second right it's just like little very simple uh, you know atoms flying around and this ball of gas which is half a light year across and solar mass or something like that will in time cool right? because outside it's even colder than inside the the ball of gas what does it mean to cool what does it mean like temperature is a is an average quantity right temperature is just telling you how fast the molecules are moving so this fact, what it means to cool is that the molecules are slowing down. As they slow down, they have no choice but to fall deeper into the potential well, right, into the gravitational pull of the star. And then that whole process you know, goes unstable and the whole thing collapses on itself. Right? Now, if this was a perfect ball, right, that just wasn't rotating, it was perfectly, you know, uh, still, it would just fall upon fall down and make a star and that would be it but in reality this is that that would be an oversimplification right all clouds are turbulent and we can sort of see that by looking up at the clouds in on earth right flying on an airplane right you know that clouds are kind of turbulent right so that sense of that turbulence gives every collapsing uh, cloud that's about to make a star a sense of overall rotation which is very small but then just like a ballerina that jumps up and brings in her arms to spin up when you take this stuff and you collapse it down to the center 
right? It spins up, right? And that's where that, you know, process uh, of, of making a disc comes from. It's a lot like, you know, um, even though it's not exactly the same, but it's very much related to how people make a pizza, right? And you take a ball of dough, you throw it and you spin it and then it makes a pizza. At least that's what I've been told. I've never made a pizza myself. <laughs> Usually you just put it down on the table and you like spread it out, you know? Um, Usually you just call, you know, <laughs> call, call a man and he just like arrives with it. There was a place in New York when we lived that was called Pizza Boy 2. And Pizza Boy was always at the ready with the pizza. I want to say they had us on speed dial, but they, they knew where we lived. We didn't even have to tell them who we were. <laughs> uh, so my, my question is, where does the ball of gas come from in the first place? Is, mm -hmm. it, is it a nova source? Is it accretion of some other form? Where's, what is the origin? So the origin of all matter in the universe is the Big Bang. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit weird. There's, uh, I'm you know, thinking like way downstream of that, not necessarily like where does the first atom come from? I'm thinking mm -hmm. of where does this accretion of where does this it's, it's a nebula that we're talking about, right? Well, it, it's no, we're talking about giant molecular clouds, right? So these are just like kind of the way you spot them uh, with your telescope. Um, you can need a very big telescope, but the way you spun them is as you scan across the night sky, occasionally you'll be like, wait, there's no stars there, right? Uh, what's going on? And the answer is that the stars are being obscured by a cloud. And the, the Milky Way is just studded with these giant molecular clouds. They range quite a bit in their, in their mass. They go from kind of solar mass scale to on the large uh, and they can get up to really high masses, like 10,000 solar masses and so where do they come uh, but, from but right so so this is just hydrogen and helium gas uh that forms you know early in the universe uh and then kind of gets recycled of course through the through the solar uh through the stellar lifetime what you're talking about when you say where do the metals come from those predominantly come from supernovae so when this, the universe is born it's born almost entirely out of hydrogen and helium. There's a little bit of lithium, but, but you know, it's a very boring place actually, because there's just like not, uh, the, the kind of periodic table is just not filled in. Um, in fact, it's boring, but it's, it's in a universe I prefer because I don't like anything heavier than lithium. <laughs> I just can't remember like the much number easier. of protons. Yeah. Uh, but then as you form stars, right? Star, stars go through their, a lifetime where they uh, kind of eventually you know, convert hydrogen into helium, helium into more heavy things, and uh, stars that are particularly massive then blow up as supernovae at the end of their lives and spew out this whole the whole periodic table basically back into the universe to create, to give it the next kind of generation of stars, next generation of disks, they're going to be more enriched in everything heavier than hydrogen and helium. So, but the, the molecular clouds that form, that allow for this gravitation collapse, they are, mm -hmm. you would link them directly back to 
the you know the origin point of the universe, or they come together over the course of the lifetime of the universe de novo. Well, yeah, they they come together over the lifetime of the universe, but the the material that makes them is indeed the primordial, you know, hydrogen and helium. <laughs> the primordial ooze. So how does the cloud of gas come together, right? So you have a universe. It makes me think of clouds on Earth. I've been studying cloud formation on yeah. Earth. We, we had a conversation with someone recently about this, and I realized I knew nothing about it. And uh, yeah, it makes me think of all the fascinating nucleation events. And, you know, uh, Dr. Basri, uh, from Berkeley, when he was on the show, he he mentioned that that dust particles played a role in in this nuclear. Like there there seemed to be some parallels between cloud formation on Earth and this molecular cloud formation that that seeds what will become a star. Uh, yeah, I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, are they are they forming like planetary clouds? Are they are they special or? So the there are some parallels, but but they're certainly not one to one because the clouds on Earth. Are are not gravitating, right? They're they're not being held together by the gravity of the cloud, right? They're being held together really through other processes and electrostatic, uh, like, probably. Yeah, I mean, like clouds clouds on Earth are actually extraordinarily complicated, right? Cloud formation is not well understood, I would say. In fact, like that's if I again, my background in this is is relatively limited, but I think my understanding is that much of the error in like climate prediction, right? So like what's going to happen as the climate warms up, you know, where what's the number of degrees by which we heat up? Much of that is due to the uncertainty and how the cloud albedo feedback is going to work. And it's so true. Like that's happening right now where we live. Like we're supposed to have a hundred degree temperature day yesterday. And since we have forest fires, Right near us. The smoke the smoke is thick enough that it's dropped it down to... It's like 20 degrees colder than it's supposed to be. I think it's more than that. I think that it's 65 and it was supposed to be 100. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. That's right. Battling, you guys are battling climate change one forest fire at a time, right? You, you know, like there, I, there is. Yeah, this is, it's nature's chemtrail. Yeah. <laughs> we were actually out yeah. in the woods. We were in the woods the other day and we were like, yeah, these... This fire is kind of nice, actually, because we'd be like burning in the sun otherwise, and we were we were swimming in this nice creek, and we were just like, uh, we were trying to Na like... nature's chemtrails <laughs> is like a good name for like a folk band, you know. <laughs> we were thinking we'd start like start a YouTube channel where we just loud the benefits of of chemtrails and maybe uh, a yeah. you know review forest fires. Go. Yeah, but but you know to kind of get back to what we were talking about in the astrophysical clouds that we're talking about, right? They are predominantly being held together by gravity because they're on a large, much larger scale. This is a gas that if you were to kind of spread it out evenly, but introduce just a little bit of noise on top of it, the parts that are slightly over dense will attract other parts and they kind of, you know, grow through just a gravitational matter. Does that make sense? It does. Is anybody playing with the idea that electrostatics could play a role in that? Like they do in cloud formation, or or what? Anybody looking into specifically the chemical the chemical side of that? I mean, it's interesting that the hydrogen e exists in a molecular form, or even that they're called molecular forms instead of like ionized cloud. Sorry, molecular clouds instead of ionized clouds or something. Yeah, ionization and generally magnetic fields play uh, a big role in their evolution. Uh, in fact, one of the kind of in the simplest the simplest story that you can tell. Is that the overall rotation of the 
clouds is set by the direction of the magnetic field because the magnetic field pierces the cloud. Now, even if your ionization fraction is tiny, right? Now you're that those those ions are going to be just because the magnetic Reynolds number gets kind of high, right? They then will kind of freeze in the overall sense of rotation to the symmetry axis of the magnetic field. So then when the collapse happens, you fall down the kind of symmetry axis of the magnetic field. And that's what sets the uh, direction of of where your disk is going to, how your disk is going to rotate. That's of course an oversimplification because as I mentioned just you know a little small number of minutes ago, these are turbulent systems. So there's not really a single sense of like here's a ball let's slowly rotate once per 10 million years this way right it's rotation is fractal but even in that turbulence that turbulence is in part driven by magnetohydrodynamic processes so absolutely um, magnetic fields play a, a very important role in the early formation of planetary systems what about the electrostatics of those molecules interacting with each other is anybody looking into that or is that talked about at all? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, like I'm not I'm not a chemist, but uh, I mean, people worry about all kinds of you know all kinds of very detailed uh, chemical modeling was happening to NH three plus right like that's if you know or like yeah I think it's NH I'm not gonna lie. Right, NH three plus is what came to mind, but I'm not sure that's actually right. It might be, it might be some other molecule. I, I hate a, molecules. You hate molecules, just as a I baseline. I hate molecules. I only know about hydrogen helium, and that's it. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Well, that yeah, that's what kind of what I'm getting at. I just wonder if there's this whole other layer of things that that since people who study astronomy tend to have physics backgrounds, not chemistry backgrounds. I, I just wonder if there's a, a, a layer there that that future generations will uncover when the any... astrochemists uh, like astrochemi- a word? The, the early yeah, astrochemistry no, astro- yeah. astrochemistry uh, is a huge industry right it's only it's only dumb people like me that only know about hydrogen helium <laughs> there are there are smart people in the field that that are well aware that there are things uh heavier than hydrogen helium and astrochemistry is generally becoming a it, not only is it a hu- huge industry it's like getting to a point where it's not just trying to like reproduce a spectrum of some protoplanetary disk right it's getting to a really beautifully detailed uh very quantitative uh state where they're making all kinds of all kinds of progress hmm. so so yeah yeah people are very much thinking about that problem i'm just not such a person because yeah, i can't remember to. any of the molecules like i don't even know what i'm breathing right now it's probably hydrogen <laughs> it's just some healing. stuff it's fine, it's fine. Yeah. it's not that important it works is what's important exactly. um yeah. now that we've covered the birth of stars i want to ask yes. you about the death of stars mm-hmm. so the conventional story when you look at diagrams of stellar evolution they end in novas Sometimes. Most of the time, no? Uh, Let's look at the stellar evolution diagram on Wikipedia. Yeah. It's like a bunch of different routes they can take. So while while you're looking at that, I guess the the question is, what are the ways in which stars die? And why is it that we see so few novas? 
Well, so the, um, you know, there's basically two routes that stars can go by, right? One, if you, if they're somewhat more massive than the sun, right? Think, you know, roughly factor of 1.5, um, then they can go supernova. And that process is very, very short. Uh, in fact, capturing that explosion is uh, is one of the coolest things you can do because you mentioned chemistry, but you get to see, right? The you get to see the enrichment of the universe in in kind of the previously less represented part of the of the periodic table, kind of in real life. But they, the supernovae are kind of short events. You you see uh, supernovae remnants uh, all the time. Short These events on that, human time scales? I think they only last a few tens of thousands of years, right? Uh, so supernovae explosions themselves last really, they're, they're like seconds, right? So you're really capturing them. But then the uh, remnants last for, for a long time, um, right? In fact, there was, a, there was a supernova remnant. I forget exactly which one, but... You could trace the explosion to something like the year uh, sixteen something or other because there's uh, there's drawings of it all over the world, mm. like you know, in in all in all cultures, like all cultures noted that there was a weird star that appeared that was that was visible during the day mm. for a little while. Um, but stars like the sun that will not undergo supernova explosion die a very a very you know boring death mm. right they will first go th- become giant okay? this will happen to our sun in five billion years right and that will you know pr- probably engulf the earth maybe not but you know i'm really rooting for for the sun i think we've done uh you know we, we've done so much damage that we we would deserve it, you know. Frankly, at the end of the day, if the sun was just like, all right, you guys are done, and, and just engulf the earth, um, I think Mars might be saved. Um, <clears throat> and then afterwards, right, the sun goes through this, uh, you know, process of mass loss, and uh, like that's where the the planetary nebula, um, the so-called planetary nebula, is a confusing name, but. Uh, it's a process during which uh, a lot of the mass will get blown off. Then the sun will become a white dwarf. It'll just sit there, slowly burning through the rest of, like a little bit of its leftover nuclear fuel. Uh, but it'll be a very, very boring day. Eventually, it'll just go kind of dark. Um, you have to. We're extra- extrapolating into very deep future now. And so when you extrapolate into the deep, so I have mm-hmm. I, I have a, a, a constellation of things that lead to a longer timeline, which is that for a long time, we used to think that the expanse of the universe was just the Milky Way. We learned to look beyond the Milky Way. We saw that the universe was much bigger. Now we have the James Webb. We're looking out to the edge of the universe and we're like, whoa, hey, that's weird. We have fully formed galaxies 200 million years after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. Now there's sort of, it seems up in the air as to whether or not the Big Bang is going to get pushed back or not. Like, let's say it get, let's say it does get pushed back. And the age of the universe is actually much older than we realize because it's going to be another Milky Way to Hubble 
sort of jump with the James Webb. Uh, if the age of the universe is much longer than we realize, what happens after you go from white dwarf to black dwarf? Is there, is there a different path of stellar evolution that over such long periods of time you can imagine where they like, might will be... Like, will the solar systems collect the black dwarves and make something out of them? Or collect the black dwarves? Will they... Could you have a star that dies in such a way where the rocky metallic core is maintained and it's not blown off and it gradually becomes mm-hmm. a rocky planet? Is, are these, are these things that yeah. are possible? You're, you're asking all the right questions. So... First, I, I don't think that the age of the universe is going to get pushed back. I think the the Planck data, uh, Planck, which is a different, you know, different mission from about a decade ago. Uh, For the CMB, I think that's been, uh, yeah, the CMB, right? So like that's that's got the age of the universe, I think, pretty well nailed down. The fact that there's fully formed galaxies only two hundred million years from the time zero is telling us something remarkable about structure formation and, and kind of how rapidly that can ensue. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think that the age of the universe itself is going to change much from the 14 uh, or whatever the exact number is, billions of, of years. But to answer your other question, as you go into the future uh, and the white dwarf just kind of cools down to nothing, it's just going to be a uh, iron core, mm. you know, with a largely helium atmosphere. It's going to be very boring. Um, and then like a moon say, what happened? I mean, it's going to just look, well, it's still half a solar mass, right? So it's not, it's not a tiny thing. It's sort of the radius of the earth, but it's a, it's a very massive thing. And then you you can ask the question, well, what happens after? What if you just keep extrapolating uh, in time forward forever? Well, the universe is expanding, right? So our, you know, the distance between things is growing. So if you really start to push this into the deep future, what you're going to be at is an even more boring universe where the your kind of horizon, right, is going to be very limited so that that white dwarf that we talked about, it, the, the amount of the universe is going to get so big that the, the time scale for light to travel to, say, the next star is going to be, um, or, sorry, not the time, time scale, but the, the expansion of the universe between you know, neighboring stars is going to be faster than you know, the speed of light. So your horizon shrinks and you kind of become isolated into your own little observable universe. Maybe you can help me understand something about the expansion of the universe, which is that if the Mm -hmm. universe is expanding, wouldn't all of the objects within the universe also be expanding, therefore creating no net change? How is it? Uh, Yeah, the thing that counteracts the expansion of the universe is gravity. So the expansion of the universe, really, you can think of as, as the fabric of space-time itself that that's expanding so the best analogy that i like uh, is it's kind of like take a rubber band right take a rubber band or take better yet a surface of a balloon since we talked about balloons before right and imagine you're blowing up the balloon right imagine you're a creature that lives on the surface of the balloon right suddenly 
it's like the space between points itself is expanding. Now, if you're a creature that is gravitationally attracted to another creature on the surface of a balloon, you can still kind of meet one another and hang out. And that's what kind of galaxies are, right? They're gravitation, they're the gravitational counteraction of the expansion of the universe. But if you're here and there's a pair of other creatures here and the balloon is expanding, the distance between you is still growing. And eventually, if you if, you know, if you put a speed limit on the uh, on the rate at which you can transfer information, you can imagine reaching a state where the space between you is expanding faster than your signals can travel. And that's what the whole business with horizons is all about, right? It's that you kind of get isolated from being able to communicate from exchange any information, including light, right, with other portions of the universe because the balloon is big and it's growing ever bigger. Um, and, and so you draw a line, sort of a circle on this balloon around you where like that becomes the horizon with which you can communicate. And so what is, what is, so if, if it's the space that's expanding, what is mm -hmm. what is doing the expanding right so it's the the objects are constrained gravitationally they stick together yeah. they don't expand but the distance between them is expanding and so isn't that something from nothing doesn't that violate yeah isn't and, that isn't that a foundational violation have, uh, and isn't that, isn't that a magic have, trick uh, oh it's a uh, it's a magic trick and the key to every magic trick right is to choose a really good greek letter to reproduce it <laughs> okay like you know if you're down. gonna have a fudge factor right if your fudge factor is a lame letter like a okay like no one's gonna believe your theory right it's just gonna like <laughs> b is also really bad but lambda is excellent especially capital lambda excellent um so yeah look uh, this is what you're uh what you you've gotten to a really important point this is the, the fact that we really don't understand what's driving that expansion, right? The name that is given to, to that entity is dark energy, which is different from dark matter. They're unrelated things. Uh, but what is the fundamental nature of dark energy? It was vacuum energy. Uh, no one knows. But we see the expansion of the universe. This is not just like, you know, people are not just making this up. Like we actually see the fact that distant uh, galaxies are redshifted away from us. So, but there is this interesting tension between that that recession and the one that you mentioned with the Planck satellites, right? There is a tension where where there's some discrepancy in that yes. actual right. So, so that the, that's interesting too. The, actual number is uh, is indeed there's, there's the Hubble tension. Um, you know, I, I'm not a cosmologist, so I don't follow this field very closely, but, um, my recollection is that it's sort of in the 0. 0.7 something, 0. 0.72, uh, or, or something or other. So, so yes, there is a, a bit of tension in the number itself, but, um, it's important not to, not to throw away kind of the entire thing, uh, just because, I mean, that tension in the number might lead to some really deep insight 
into the physical reality of the origin of dark energy. And frankly, like it would be awesome if it did, uh, right? But the expansion of the universe itself, um, that determination is relatively straightforward. Like without knowing why it's happening, you can just tell that it's happening from the same principle as why the ambulance changes pitch as it goes by you, right? I mean, it's just the Doppler effect. Um, so, so this really is happening. The universe is a confusing place. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you can't put it in a box and do an experiment to see if your interpretation is correct. Yeah. And that's well, the... And that's the that's the thing that makes a lot of science so robust is that you can put it in a box, right? If you have bees that you are like, well, why do they dance? And you can move around the flowers and you can show that they dance in a specific way to get to the flowers. And if you move the flowers that don't get there, you're like, well, Eureka. Mm -hmm. But with something like the expansion of the universe and the addition of dark matter, you you can't put it in a box and there's a lot that's of, true there's a lot of that's spiritual true. need almost to have an an origin well look i mean i would say that uh, uh I, I, I would disagree here because there's a whole bunch of stuff we can't put into a box right uh you can't put a star into a box right you can't put a exactly. planet into a box and we could be wrong and it doesn't I don't think we are. Uh, I think I mean, we're probably not, star... but we can't yeah. touch them, you know? I mean, we can, I guess yeah. there's like the, the Parker Solar Probe and stuff, but yeah, we can't like just go down there and poke at it. And, but but, but, it, but it you isn't can an probe interesting... them other ways, right? You can probe stars by looking at their spectra, right? You can probe That's stars like a, by looking... There's like an indirect level to that, right? That we don't yeah. have to deal with if we're doing laboratory science, which is... You know, and like I've never seen as much as like I've I've talked about how much I love hydrogen and helium. I've never seen hydrogen and helium atoms, right? But I've measured hydrogen spectra and helium spectra in the in the lab, right? You, you can see the consequences of that. So I think that uh, the beauty of kind of the reductionist approach to physics is it allows you to make specific predictions that you can uh, observe about things that are completely outside of our human reach. Mm. I mean, what you're talking about, is, there's, a, there's a level of magnetism towards things that you can, you can do at sort of the tabletop scale, right? Which is why I love the double pendulum, right? Like I can play with the double pendulum and, note, and that's a lot like putting the bees into a box or, or, or whatever. Um, ultimately, I think that's how our, all of our like actual understanding works we in the end have to always reduce our understanding down to something we can uh, kind of imagine and it's very difficult to imagine you know the fabric of space-time growing in four dimensions but we can imagine a balloon right uh, a balloon expanding and then using the same kind of mathematical principles make predictions about what we're going to see uh, about the redshift of galaxies and then test if that's true or not. Yeah, it's there's there's this gap, though, in the scale that's just very, very strange. Like on Earth, we can play with hydrogen and helium and they'll have these line spectra. But for some reason, when we look at the sun, well, you know, mm -hmm. obviously there's like this whole, there's, there's a rationale for this, but we look at the sun, we see this beautiful black body 
uh, spectrum. Mm-hmm. And of course, like the atmosphere has different lines and so forth, but it's a very different matter than on Earth because we there's there's no real way to take a bunch of hydrogen on Earth and get a black body spectrum out of it. And so you have to make yeah. this leap, this theoretical leap to to explain that, that you can't really go and, and try out because you can't build one, you know? Well, yeah, and, and I think it's also important to keep in mind that all of science, uh, the science is not so not really a, um, it's not really the procedure of going from we don't understand to now we do understand and the book is closed. It's this infinite number of steps that get you to a successively closer approximation to the truth. So the black body spectrum, right, the Earth's atmosphere is also a black body spectrum to a pretty good approximation. And if you're a spy satellite, for example, you then say, okay, we, we want to find where that approximation breaks down, where we can see through the atmosphere, right? You try to find bands where, uh, you know, you can see down to the surface where water is not absorbing. So, so you know, and the same thing with stars. Stars are black bodies. They're really good black bodies for the most part. But if you really want to inquire uh, about the composition of the star, you look for the lines that are not, uh, that kind of stand out from the black body spectrum. Yeah, and those lines are really easy to to study on Earth, but you can't make a, a black body out of gas on Earth, basically, which is really an interesting conundrum. Um, sure, you can. I mean, you can you can make a black body uh, if you've got got a balloon. I mean, the whole shtick with black body radiation is if you've got a bunch of oscillators, right, that are all in equilibrium in a box, in a black box, so you don't know anything about what's going on inside that box, and you measure the temperature, the spectrum of that box, you get the black body radiation. So so you can get pretty close to a black body radiation. In fact, I don't know, I think that on that blackboard, if we, if we measured it, it's uh, spectrum, it would look a lot like a black body. If, oh, yeah, the blackboard would for sure, but I'm talking about like a gas, you know? Right, because when you're measuring the black body inside of a cavity, it's the cavity that is giving off the mm-hmm. the radiation, not necessarily the gas that's within it. Yes, yeah, so you have to measure the, the temperature of the balloon, so to speak. And and that's and that's the thing, right? The balloon so has like a surface. Though. The the sur- when you measure the surface, it's so from mm-hmm. what I understand, the continuous spectrum of a black. So this we went down this rabbit hole a little while ago, where we were looking at the we were looking at black body radiation and studying the sun, and there was mm-hmm. I read Kirchhoff's original manuscript about spectral determinations, like where he first figured out about this this the law of emission, and. Okay. He talks about a couple of things. He talks about the fact that a solid object will give off black body radiation, a continuous spectrum, mm-hmm. that gases will give off line spectra, and mm-hmm. a gas in between a solid object and your detector will absorb in lines. Mm-hmm. Right? And then so far so good, yeah. And then and then he basically he he you know, he writes more about it and he talks about it and he's giving off his perspectives of why that is. And then if you go to the Wikipedia page for Kirchhoff's Law, there's a third point that's been added, which is that a sufficiently large ball of gas gives off a black body spectrum. But if you start mm-hmm. digging through the literature, you can't, it, it doesn't have a citation. You can't trace it down. It's taken as a given. 
but I cannot find the original source where somebody did that experiment and was like, here, look, ah, it does. There's a great story associated with, I think Kirchhoff uh, was the, fir- the person who did this experiment. So the story is that him and Bunsen, like of the Bunsen burner fame, mm-hmm. right? They were like, they were hanging out all the time in Heidelberg, like they were friends. Um, just like light, light and stuff on fire with the bunsen i'm i'm assuming right i mean yeah, they, like that's if you literally invent... that's literally what they were doing because he invented the spectrophotometer and so bunsen yeah. was like wait wait, wait 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 hold on hold on let's add this flame it's like bro like <laughs> point this pointed this way <laughs> right so so they they invented uh the spectrophotometer and uh then one morning they saw it down the river like i think it was kirchhoff who came out in the morning like to have his coffee or smoke his cigarette or whatever and he saw a bunch of smoke uh coming up uh, like from far away you know from down the river and pointed the uh spectrophotometer at it like noted down what he saw and it was all this like weird stuff right like when you matched up the spectra it was just like stuff that should not be in the atmosphere right just like very heavy like heavy metals and uh like not metallica heavy metals but like you know like proper heavy metals right and he was just like like this doesn't work uh right clearly you can't do remote sensing and then the next day he read in the uh in the newspaper that there was a chemical factory that caught fire and that's what uh, that's where the smoke was coming from. And it was then he was like, oh, my God, that w- it was actually given the right answer. Right. The heavy metals that he was detecting really were in the atmosphere. And that's mm-hmm. when he got the idea to point it at the sun to try to get, you know, the, the spectral lines, uh, lines of the sun. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful story. Now, I, um, you know, the question of at what point right do you go from kind of a gas that where you just like measure its lines to a gas that looks like a a black body i think has to do with achieving local thermodynamic equilibrium right but it's a but what you're what you're asking is a good question i i would have to dig deeper through the literature to have a good quantitative answer for you if you could off if you if you could find that citation I would be forever grateful because from what I understand of black body radiation, the reason that solid objects that have lattice structures are able to give off black body radiation is because of electron delocalization. Like when you have a gas that vibrates, it vibrates in a specific mode and that gives off... Like a limited mode. There's like limited degrees of freedom with a gas, but... And so you get a single line spectrum. In a lattice, it's essentially an infinite spectrum of vibrational modes. And so if you don't have the lattice, and if you don't have that kind of electron delocalization, how do you get the kind of continuous, smooth... The well, radius like that the you get from the expl- explanation, you know, which but. is the photons are bouncing around in the middle of the sun for millions of years, mm-hmm. and they come out. And so, right. uh, perhaps, but I would love to see a reference for for any any approach to it experimentally. So, if you could find that, I would hmm. love it. Because I I was I was shocked because I I read Kirchhoff's book that he wrote after his experiments with Bunsen, mm-hmm. and it's not in there. 
it is it is assumed to be a given and it's not in there and i would love to find out how it became to be a given yeah uh that's that's interesting um I could be totally wrong, right? Like maybe I, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I misread it and, and this is just a question of having misunderstood it, but I, I, I looked and I was really surprised because you can, you can get, uh, plasma can give you kind of a continuous radiation spectrum, but it, it has like a weird bump under pressure. Yeah. Like it's brunstone radiation. Spike. And so it's got this really weird shape to it. So it doesn't look like the sun's black body. And so I was just, I've, mm -hmm. I've been curious ever since then. And so any, any physicist that I get on the show that does anything with, uh, with stars, I always ask and no one's, no one's been able to offer the citation. So if you can help me find it. I would love that. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a, it's an issue. Who were the first, yeah. Um, who were the first uh, people to understand this? You're saying it's I mean, there was a huge debate. There's a really yeah. interesting historic retrospective I read about the, the sun. I can't remember the name of it right now. And there was just so much warring going on in the scientific community about what was causing, like, how, what was the structure of the sun? Like, was it this, shell that contained a gas you know what what caused this opacity it's a, there's a really heated and back there's this many years where it's just going back and forth and then the the eddington thing happens and people just move on it's just like all right done and uh i mean they, it was uh was it herschel who thought like herschel and the solarians and there's, there's but there was Italians the solarians he thought uh herschel was convinced that there was a race of people who lived on the sun called the solarians underneath mm -hmm. the ignited atmosphere of the sun because they could see through the sunspots that it was dark down there and so they're like oh we must be looking at a rocky planet because if it wasn't a rocky planet we'd be able to see the other side of the sun through it and if it's a rocky yeah. planet, there's clearly a race of people called the Solarians that live down there. Different times. Maybe there are. I mean, no one's checked. Like you're saying, like no one's ever gone and checked. They're all probably making fun of us. Well, that's the um, that's the like. Uh, do you have you ever read any Thomas Gold? Thomas Gold. Yeah, like, Thomas Gold, the Cornell professor. Uh, I think from, so. Yeah, from yeah, like the seventies. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, of course, yeah. So he wrote the deep hot biosphere, and in the deep hot biosphere, he has basically a model for life that is not oh, yeah. carbon based and not of our scales. And I've always, I've always kept that with me. Like whenever I look at the sun, I always, I always wonder. Yeah, you know, Tommy Gould was was famous for, um, you know, being right a whole bunch of times without <laughs> doing the calculation. Right? I mean, he was. Uh, you know that's what i'm aspiring uh, to that's my that's my benchmark <laughs> yeah yeah me too yeah no he was a he was a really opinionated guy uh his uh one of his students peter goldreich um is still around he's a professor uh emeritus at caltech and you know i've had the pleasure of having numerous discussions with him and uh yeah it's there is they're crazy stories from like the sixties with, with Tommy gold. Uh, my, my doctoral advisor, Dave Stevenson was a TA for Tommy gold at some point. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Dave used to tell me that there was this, like, like Tommy gold was just kind of, you know, he would just talk about ideas. He'd be like, it's clearly, you know, it's clearly, it should be obvious to you that da 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 da. Right. And that thing would be like completely not obvious to anybody, but it was really obvious to him. But also he could not do calculations. Right. He could he at one point during this class tried to write down a single equation 
uh, and got it wrong. And the equation was e equals mc squared, and he got it wrong. He said it wrote e equals mc. So, so he had no capacity to. That's awesome. I wonder if he did that on purpose, just to sort of, you know, to drive it no. home. No, he did not. Right? He he just he was an extraordinarily creative, uh, you know, astrophysicist with remarkable intuition and no capacity to do calculations, which kind of like begs the question more generally like is there more than one way to really do physics right yeah. i mean it is true right that people fall on different parts of the spectrum some people are very mathematical they think uh kind of very algebraically other people are very geometrical uh but you know you can't really do physics unless you you have a very solid mathematical background right that's just not part of the career and uh you know, at the same time, one wonders where where's the range, where's that spectrum really end in in being able to to make useful contribution. We know that if you're very very mathematical, you can definitely make useful contributions. But where does it end on the other side? Well, you can always collaborate that's... too, right? I mean, even Einstein was collaborating with math with a mathematician on yeah. on his greatest works, and you know, I found yeah. that to be the case, like. I have sort of middling mathematical abilities myself, but I've always found a way to make myself useful conceptually in collaborations, you know, where, um, especially from a material science background, where I can think about things, like you said, maybe more like geometrically or mm -hmm. in terms of their interactions uh, physically, and then find people, you know, reach out to people, collaborate with people that are specializing more in the, say, fluid dynamics or in the right. deformation mechanics and things like that, that that are heavily mathematical so absolutely uh i mean me too i i i'm okay like i'm not a uh but i'm not, by no means a very good mathematician i i, I can I've sort seen of a lot of pictures of you in front of blackboards covered in mathematical equations <laughs> just like fake news like, don't, re <laughs> don't believe don't believe everything you see on the internet right? mm, um, yeah it's just like i i know i don't understand about any of that <laughs> No, no, but, but in all seriousness, though, like I, I get, you know, I'm okay, and I can sort of do what I need to do, but I do not have a mathematical, like, I don't do not have mathematical imagination, I have mm. kind of geometrical imagination, I can imagine how stuff happens very vividly, but I cannot, it takes me a while to download that vision, if you will, into a quantitative model. Yeah, so that's sort of like the power of working in big communities, I think, too, is if you have, if you can look at things in that material interaction way and then work with somebody, then then it's, you can make yeah. all the more powerful publication as a result of it. I mean, I found this in biology a lot where as you delve deeper and deeper and deeper into a specific question, you end up falling short on being able to look at the bigger picture. And that often, in my experience, correlated to people who were very technically proficient, mm -hmm. but were not necessarily, they, I don't know if they didn't have the interest or the time or, the, or whatever else to step back and to look at the big picture. And sometimes paradigms have to shift. And I think that the people who are looking at the intricate details of one further step of the technological or the mathematical have a harder time generating the idea that causes the paradigm shift because there's something about a depth of understanding where you can go one step further quite easily 
but it's very hard to erase the entire blackboard and start. Yeah, I understand what you mean, but but I I firmly believe you can't have one without the other, right? Those paradigm shifts don't happen until your your model gets so sophisticated that you can readily see where it doesn't work. I mean, think about um, like the example of the Ptolemaean, you know, epicycles, right? Like the Middle Eastern scholars in the in the ninth, tenth century took that model like to some absurd level of complexity where the number of epicycles was astounding, and just like the calculations were getting really quite heavy. And it was actually the Middle Eastern scholars themselves that realized that this is not a convergent uh, you know, program where you can keep on trying to fix the model by adding more and more episodes, but, but you will diverge away from the observations of the planets faster than you're able to correct uh, from them. And, and so like, it was that ability to drill down and get to the super technical, you know, point that then gives you the the license really to to then fully erase the blackboard, right? Uh, so, so I think you it, it's not. I, mean, I I fully agree with you that it's not. It's oftentimes not the same people that are doing the erasing and the and the writing of drilling. But but I think you kind of the thing that motivates that rethinking right the thing that motivated general relativity for example right was the fact that people started getting uncomfortable with the fact that there was no magnetic version of the gravitational field and you know precession of mercury's orbit was getting you know kind of problematic uh you know so all all of these things but these were detailed calculations do you not agree like they're you you don't it wasn't just a spark of einsteinian genius to to say well no let's reimagine all of gravity it was it was motivated by the fact that it was not working with the existing model of existing detailed model of reality Mm. But mm. for a long time, there was resistance to that change, though, too, which is something that mm-hmm. is I look I look out at the world now and I feel like science hasn't had a ton of paradigm shifts in the last 50 years or so. Um, well, I think it's it's different. Different sciences do uh, I, do go through their paradigm shifts and at different times. I mean physics had this extraordinarily successful early 20th century where in fact the amount that was figured out was so large that i think we were still kind of grappling with interpreting what all the things that were figured out figured out so we're kind of in a way writing the success of the early uh 20th century and that interpretive level is exactly what those people who don't necessarily excel at mathematics are good to have on your team for, right? There's that interpretive level that's that's absolutely essential to science. Yeah. And like it, somebody's done yeah. the calculation and somebody like, else. What the hell is does like... this mean? <laughs> it's like, oh, I think yeah. I know what this means, you know? Um, and there's so many of those at the quantum level too, where where you just like, what does this mean? You know, what what is the significance? What's the material significance of this this mathematics? And there's so much work to be done there. But you were saying that the the paradigm shift, the the fruitful exploration of the beginning of the 20th century is is 
it reflects different time periods of paradigm shift for different fields? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, if you look at sort of the paradigm shift that occur that occurred in, um, this is a small, less important, you know, problem, if you will. But if you think about, you know, the stuff that I work on, right, planet formation theory, planet formation theory, absolutely, right now, is going through a paradigm shift of throwing away everything we thought we knew and and rebuilding it from scratch and the reason it's happening is because we've it's not because like you know someone woke up one morning and thought you know i really think the earth formed in a different way it's because we've started getting data for planets that orbit other stars and we are beginning to see the the like swiss cheese uh, of of our planet formation theory is full of holes full of things you cannot explain and it's really that tension between the observations and the classical model that's driving a lot of that creativity. And you're right; uh, there, there are those in the field who who really want to hold on to the to the picture we had because it's a comfortable picture. We know how it works. We had worked out all kinds of things about it. And then there there are people who say, "Oh, everything is wrong. We have to." completely go back to the very basics and the truth is of course somewhere in the middle but but that's that makes for a very exciting time in the uh in the science in the discipline i feel like humans have always wanted to say like we, we basically understand how everything works you know ever since yeah. you read the writings of the ancients even and they're like this is how it works if you put a leaf works. of basil between two bricks and leave it in the sun you get a scorpion and the tree will it's produce yeah. birds it's like so certain about it you know and people are just like yeah it makes sense to me yeah yeah it like kind of defaults down to a bar conversation Right, like you know, when you're in a bar, like a long night, you're like, no, that's not. That. Let me explain it to you, right? Like, and, and sort of, uh, you know, that's where that's where we always, uh, you know, that's kind that's of the goal of this podcast. Up. Actually, we try to get really smart people on the show and have a bar conversation with them, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You can go watch their lectures somewhere else, but uh, we're, we're trying. The night to is young. Yeah. I mean, this no, is no, no, it's is... true. It's it. This is it's so promising to be at this point because I think that you're right that there is after a period of of stability there is this moment where people have realized that it is possible to change the theories, and there is the tension between the people who suggested a long time ago that the theories should be changed but didn't have the math, and the people who have the math have started to catch up. Or the observational valid. The observational stuff too, but I think that it's a I think it's a generational thing because you you have a generation of scientists that come up in a certain way and there's a few dissenting voices and they they operate maybe on the edges and people pick up on their ideas because they think that they deserve to be developed and then they develop them. And one of the things that we do is we really try to talk to the people who are like, no, we have to race the entire blackboard and see if we can pick out some pearls there. And then put them in front of the people that are doing the math and putting them in front of the people who are who are changing the theories within the academy to see where those lines can be redrawn and where they can't. I'm all about erasing the blackboard and never writing again. <laughs> just like, we're done here. We'll never know. It just right. is. Where does the scorpion come from? What is a scorpion? Who cares? I, I Who know. cares? <laughs> <laughs> as long as it doesn't come near me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, there's so much to talk yeah. about. We, we've, I feel like we've, uh, we've, we've been talking for like an hour and a half. I know you're a, a busy dude, and you, you probably unfortunately, have a lot of work to back to. I've got, I've got, I've got a really important thing to do, which is literally, I have to get on a skateboard and go home and change my shirt for <laughs> like that, you know. And, and I'm only half kidding. Is it? Are you gonna put on a, a fancier shirt or a less fancy shirt? No, no, just a Y shirt. Okay, you know, <laughs> just like a tuxedo. <laughs> that's the uniform. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, Listen, you guys, it was a really, uh, really a lot of fun uh, discussing all uh, all of this with you. Hopefully, we'll continue this conversation at the bar, where we can really get drill down how things really operate and and never question our beliefs again. We uh, will probably be in Southern California later in the year. So perhaps okay. don't don't awesome. offer that too easily because we will show up at your door. No, I will. Uh, I offer that in full seriousness, and uh, yeah, I, it's like I, yeah, I never joke around about this. Sorry. Oh I'd yeah, love to see yeah. Your band sometimes too. Yeah. And the reverse is true. I, I listened to your stuff and really liked it. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. So guys, uh, if you are listening to this, uh, check out Seventh Season. Seventh season is the name of the band. Is that it? Yeah. You got it. Yeah, the seventh season dot band. Yeah. And uh, where where else can folks uh, find your work? Do you do any social media or anything like that? Or yeah, I've been staying away from social media just in the last I don't know half a year or so, just because I've I've really had no cycles, no time to come up with like interesting things to say other right just because i i have uh between you know starting you know the between starting a company and like you know being a prof and recording music right but i will uh get back to posting on twitter.com at some point right i haven't been banned Right. I just haven't been, I just yes. haven't had the interest. Yeah, that's right. Then you just young. hang out for a little <laughs> while. Yeah. Just let it cool down. Just start a bit. saying things and I'm sure it'll come. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, it was yeah. a real pleasure. Uh, okay. thanks, for, thanks for coming by. Yeah, it was really good. All right. Thanks. All right. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. See you.